Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. Today we'll be featuring two separate authors on the program, starting with Johnny Bernhard, who's just released a book, How We Came to Be. Take a listen. How's it going today, Johnny? Great. Thank you for having me oh, here. It's, it's lovely to have you here. We've been talking about this one for a while, so glad to finally see it come. Thank you. Wonderful to be in New Orleans. Good. Well, well, tell me a little bit about how We Came to Be actually came to be itself. Well, I'm very curious about metamorphosis in people. Uh, both books feature an original art cover with little girls and, and who we are as children and who we come to be as we interact with others and ideas and cultures and places. And how we came to be came about because as a woman, I have always been curious and, and thought quite a bit about the phenomenon of, of marriage and, and again divorce, though I've never been divorced, but I've certainly worked with a lot of single moms. And I, I've have always been fascinated by the very sad thing that in marriage people come in together because they're crazy in love or they, you know, maybe they're a little bit more realistic for whatever reason and they just think it's a good bond. Yeah. But somewhere along the road, there there's a divorce. And um, again, I'm, I'm curious about juxtaposition. You'll see quite a bit in, in the second novel. Mm -hmm. So it's an exploration of that, an exploration of uh, very current social topics, the, the overuse of prescription drugs, texting as a form of communication, uh, immigrants living in a large urban area and how we can sometimes just be absorbed by all of that and lose our individuality. Yeah, no, I think those are important issues and things I kind of want to address. Um, kind of starting with uh, Leona, who is the the immigrant character that uh, your main character meets in the novel and has a huge effect. Uh, talk about writing that character and why that personality and those issues were important for you to kind of touch on. I got the idea of Leona when I was in Budapest in 2015. It was a week after that government had closed the rail system to refugees from Africa and the Middle East, and I didn't want to go. I, I wanted to cancel the trip. I didn't want to be a vacationing American at that place. I was horrified by it. And no political statement, because that's not my agenda here. My agenda is the human condition. It was heartbreaking to see these families with everything they owned in paper bags walking a rail track in Eastern Europe looking for a place to accept them as the winter's coming on. I, I didn't end up going to Budapest. I'm, I'm glad I went. I learned a lot about that culture. It's a beautiful city, and it made me curious about its history. Uh, Budapest, before the Second World War, had the largest population of Jews in Eastern Europe. And uh, I took that history, and I wrote the backstory of Leona, who is a survivor of World War II, and also of Stalin, as you know. Uh, Hungary was a, a communist satellite country. It gained its independence several years ago. It's, it's a very special place, and uh, I wanted to create a character 
who was able to come to America and see both very different lifestyles. Again, that's just a position. I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And especially for someone coming from that background, there's an absurdity to kind of modern life uh, and what it's become as well as kind of a, an irony in how um, European countries, some European countries are treating refugees crisis. You know, they all have their own internal concerns, but you know, it's interesting to think about back in the late 1940s, they themselves were refugees wandering into Western Europe or into the United States and to see that kind of juxtaposed. We we forget, don't we? It's, it's easy to forget. Very, um, very quickly. And uh, I hope you were able to catch, I, I, I tried to make it a funny line and a source of contention between the older, wiser Leona and this 50-year-old single mom with a fun, fondness for wine... <laughs> Uh, where Leona definitely tries to put her in her place by calling her an American girl woman. Yeah. Stop making a big deal out of nothing. Yeah, it's, it's a, those points of reference will get you. Um, well, also in the book, you have a Louisiana connection, which you've lived, you lived in Louisiana for several mm-hmm. years. Um, where did mm-hmm. you live? Well, my mother was from Crowley, and, and, that's, and uh, she was a Sheck Snyder. So that's, that's always how we begin conversations when we come home to uh. Louisiana. <laughs> Uh, I had the good fortune of living in Morgan City in the early 90s, and uh, it's a very special town, such a wonderful blend of cultures. Um, you're, you're living right on the Chafalaya. Morgan City was originally Tiger Island. Uh, I love living there. I lived on 2nd Street, not far from Front Street, where the gates were that, that closed the city from flooding from the Chafalaya River. It's it's just a rich, multicultural, spirited place. And uh, I've never forgotten it or the people that lived there. And I wanted to have a character come from there. So in How We Came to Be, our 50-year-old single mom from Houston meets Matt Brusseward in Austin, Texas. And he's originally from Morgan City. Mm. And so... I had the opportunity to write that beautiful backstory of Morgan City and Matt working on his father's shrimp boat. He was even married to the shrimp and petroleum queen at one time. And that is a festival in Morgan City every year. Yes, it is. No, that, that's an interesting connection right there. Um, one of the things I was interested about both your books, um, both um, How We Came to Be as well as A Good Girl, is you're really interested in the idea of family and family members coming to some sort of reckoning with each other after a number of years. And I'm wondering what kind of drew you to that, that type of narrative, as well as what are some other works by other authors or novelists or even filmmakers that have really inspired that? Well, I, of course, I loved Mr. Percy. Yeah. How could I not? And Flannery O'Connor, Faulkner, because the past is never the past in the South, never. Mm-hmm. Uh, the connection about families, as as an author, I want to connect readers, and the family is it. We all come from families, whether we want to be connected to them or not. It, it sets an early stage for us as who we're going to be as people, what our belief system is, our faith, basically who we are. It, it takes tremendous change if we're unhappy with what we've been given to change that. Yeah. And uh, 
I, I am hoping that that is the connector for readers because it wouldn't matter if you were a reader that lived on Magazine Street or if you were from Cross McLean, Ireland. Yeah. Family, the relationship with mother and father, brother and sister, uh, even if you were adopted, even if you lost your family, if you were an orphan. And, you know, one of the chapters in How We Came to Be is entitled The 80-Year-Old Orphan. Hmm. That is Leona. And uh, I think that pain, whether you're one or five or 80, never leaves you, that sense of loneliness. So, of course, that connector between the protagonist and Leona is that shared sense of loss and loneliness. Yeah, you find ways of making family, making a common denominator, either even with those people that are not of your bloodline, mm-hmm. you know. And and great point, because that's the point of how we came to be. You know, a family emerges from the brokenness of all these people. Yeah. They're, they're not related by blood, and it's a very supportive and loving group, but but we have to almost get to the end of the book to see that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of drama going on, but we ver- we eventually reach that point. Yeah, no, I, I love that. One of my favorite kind of storytelling or narrative techniques, uh, in fact, I can give you an example, the movie Boogie Nights, uh, you have all these kind of traumatized people coming together for a makeshift family, and it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing, and it's kind of a pure thing. Uh, and it's, it's really lovely to see that happen. Um, well, some... Pure thing, some people would call that divine intervention. Uh, there's many different ways of looking at it. I, I don't believe in coincidence. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's interesting. Well, to kind of move on a little bit uh, with you, I know you were you are a journalist as well or have been a journalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about that career and how you got into it. Well, I, I started in Houston where I'm originally from, and uh, I, I worked for a newspaper. I've, I've worked for some magazines. As time went by, I was a freelance writer for those types of publications. Uh, when I had a family or began my family, I, I became a uh, high school English teacher. Mm. And, of course, you'll see that Karen in the book is a high school English teacher. That's the thing we do share. Uh, I, I think a public school is probably the most democratic institution we have in our country because it welcomes everyone. No one's turned away, regardless if you're a refugee, immigrant. Everyone is accepted in a public school. And I learned a lot about being a human being, being a teacher. I learned a lot about people. Yeah. Um, so I write lovingly about that. You know, Karen, the, the protagonist, teaches at a, a large uh, high school in in Houston, and she absolutely loves her students. No, oh, I think that that's great. And what made you want to transition from uh, that to writing novels? Is it something you've always wanted to do? I've always wanted to write. Yeah. Always wanted to write a novel. Didn't know how. Yeah. And uh, though I've I've been fortunate to study the craft and um, read a lot of great literature in my life, I. Uh, very much thanks to my husband, was allowed to get off the hamster wheel for a while and entered my own hamster wheel, which was my home office, for about two years and and figured this out. I'm I'm traditionally published, had to find an agent, and and from there you find a publisher. 
uh, New Orleans has a special place for me because if it wasn't for Rosemary James Faulkner Bookstore behind the cathedral and Words and Music Literary Feast, I wouldn't have been able to go forward with my first novel. Mm -hmm. I, I was able to be shortlisted in a contest through her organization and also how we came to be was a finalist now, Megan Holt with uh, One Book, One New Orleans. One, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and all those great folks are, are supporting that. It's a wonderful place for writers. It's a wonderful opportunity to meet caring people that know the craft. So it's a bit of serendipity coming back here today with, with these two books on the table in front of us. Yeah, no, I think that's lovely, kind of seeing, you know, the the fruit of your labors right there laid out in front of you. Well, that's that's true, the fruit of my labors, but also, you know, like um, the English poet quoted in How We Came to Be, Meditation 17, No Man is an Island. You you can't do this by yourself. You need, it's it's a very lonely, it's a very arduous task to write a book. You've got to have people championing you along the way while you're writing it and then when the book comes out. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. No, I can see that. You're exactly right. The network that support uh, the people that look at your work, uh, you couldn't do it without any of those folks. Um, tell me a little bit about what was, what was the hardest part for you about writing and getting into this like kind of fiction realm? Well, something magical happens when you get to the sweet spot in writing. You know, the first draft, there's nothing harder because you're inventing characters and places and time and and their character traits. That first draft is just, just difficult because you're fleshing it all out. But once you start and go back and really develop those characters, it takes on a life of its own. You're just the vehicles, vehicle riding the story. It sounds really weird. Uh, you know, I think marathon runners talk about that, where where you forget you're you're no longer aware of the time. Yeah, you're you're just so immersed in this story and the creativity of it. Uh, you have to be very very careful about neglecting other things in life. I mean, uh, with the good girl, it wasn't unusual for me to be at the grocery store or eating, and I'd remember something about a character, and I I'd want to go home and write that in before it left me, uh, or, or getting up in the middle of the night to to read yeah, and I, to write. I get that. Um, well, cool, Johnny. Um, to kind of kind of wrap us up, uh, tell me what you're reading right now as well as what you're going to start working on soon. A good friend of mine, she's, she's from New Orleans originally, um, she gave me a great book, Flannery O'Connor's, uh, mysteries on writing, on craft, on reading. Uh, I love Flannery O'Connor, national book winner. She left this world too soon. I love her most of all because she doesn't mince words. Her intellect is so sharp. She tells it like it is, as a Southern girl would. You know, uh, writing can't be taught, the creativity of that. She's, she's absolutely right. We could teach someone about sentence structure, where to use a comma, conjunctions, etc. But the writing part, the the writer that becomes an author, that's a gift, and it cannot be taught. I feel like it's a gift you have to earn, 
And uh, in this crazy world of self-publishing and everyone's a writer, it's good to hear those words again. You know, America had a wonderful tradition of excellent authors, and so much has changed in that. You, You know, you have five huge publishing companies with all their imprints. It's it's become such a commercial af- affair. But every once in a while, those great readers and writers come together and you you produce a Barbara King solver, those, those very gifted writers that make it on a national platform. So I read a lot of new writers that, that are authors that get their de- debut book out. I'm, I'm happy to champion them, talk about them on social media, uh, share conversation. I do a lot of writers' conference. I'm lucky enough to be invited where I teach craft, how to develop character, the editing process. Um, so it's a good opportunity for me to give back to what others have given me along the way. Yeah, no, I get that. And, and what about, uh, what are you working on at the moment? I'm working on the third book. Ah. And, uh, of course, we we have that metamorphosis and juxtaposition going on. Uh, this is called Sisters of the Undertow. Ah. And uh, as always, and I, I don't know if other authors can share this, I know how to begin and I know how I want to end. It's the middle that's the devil, and that's where I am now. Uh, I really want to write about Hurricane Harvey. Mm-hmm. In those five days in Houston, I'm also writing about two sisters, one that is gifted, uh, mentally, physically perfect. Her younger sister, born 15 months earlier, is a preemie baby, born at 27 weeks with learning disabilities, and how their relationship develops over the years and how their character develops. Okay, well, interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing that out eventually then. Now, good luck with the uh, the devil of the middle. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, well, Johnny, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on in. Thank you. That was author Johnny Bernhard, who has recently released a novel entitled How We Came to Be. Up next is an interview with best-selling historian and author Dan Jones. Take a listen. Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum. I'm David Benedetto, and today I welcome back author and historian Dan Jones to the program to talk about his latest book, The Templars, The Rise and Spectacular Fall of God's Holy Warriors. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm doing great, thanks, David. Well, it's glad to have you back on the show uh, with such another interesting topic taken from the realm of history. Uh, So tell me, how did this uh, project kind of get off the ground for you? Well, I'd been thinking about writing about the Templars for a long time um, because I'm always on the lookout for subjects in uh, in history that will have some resonance, some even some relevance beyond their own terms. I love stories that um, that have great material for me to write my narrative histories with, you know, big battles or strong personalities or, or dramatic um, plots or whatever. But I also like subjects that are going to get my readers thinking about issues that are live today. And I felt like with the Templars, you know, which is a, a fantastic story in and of itself, but also takes us to the war in Middle East, the you know the the rise in global finance, the power of medieval fake news. That I was kind of going to be onto something that would feel important uh, beyond just its its value as entertainment. 
No, I, I get that. And it's such a large scope there uh, for our listeners who maybe know the name Templar but aren't kind aren't quite familiar with the history. Uh, how did they begin, and what was kind of the basis for them? So the Templars were founded in Jerusalem, and they were founded in Jerusalem just after the First Crusade, which took place at the end of the 11th century, 1096 to 1099 AD. Jerusalem had fallen into Christian hands, out of Muslim um, Muslim hands, and there was an influx of Christian pilgrims from the West traveling to Jerusalem to pray at the tomb of Jesus Christ. What the pilgrims found, and we know this because they left uh, travel diaries of their times in the, in the Middle East and the Holy Land, was that the roads around Jerusalem, between, say, Jerusalem and Nazareth and Bethlehem and the Dead Sea and the River Jordan and so on, were very dangerous, and there was a high probability of being, risked, uh, being robbed or even killed on the roads. And so a group of knights who'd gone over there to the Holy Land on pilgrimage, led by a man called Hugh of Pan, decided they should do something. They decided to set up a sort of roadside rescue service, if you like, a private security detail that would escort pilgrims safely around the holy sites. Just as there was a hospital in Jerusalem, so they would set up a a kind of um, uh, a chaperone service for pilgrims, if you like. So that's, that's the origins of the Templars. But they rapidly outgrew their brief and became something dramatically bigger and rather more. No, that, that, that's very interesting. And, you know, they survived for um, hundreds of years, you know, both in Jerusalem and as this kind of force that ended up financing the likes of kings and uh, Christendom in, in Europe back in the day. Uh, but then they had this very swift and unexpected fall. Uh, could you talk about that and how that happened? Well, that's right. You know, the growth of the Templars was, was extraordinary and dramatic. From their early origins, they gained recognition by the king of Jerusalem. They gained a, a base on the Temple Mount, which they associated with the Temple of Solomon. Therefore, they gained a name. They developed a uniform for the knights. That was white robes with a red cross. They gained patronage of the Pope of kings. They were given lots of money, lots of land. They, were, um, they recruited widely from, noble, from knightly families in Europe. They developed a military wing. They, they were in the east, in the, in the Holy Land, and in Spain and Portugal, the sort of elite military units, kind of like the Navy SEALs or SAS or Delta Force of their day, fighting in Crusader armies. Because of their wealth and their need to manage it, they became incredibly rich. And, they've, and, and I'm sorry, also very adept at managing their money. Mm. And they specialized in financial services, we'd call them today. They loaned money. They provided basic banking and uh, money transfer facilities. They subcontracted the, um, a lot of the treasury functions on behalf of, of royal governments. They collected tax on behalf of the pope. They could finance crusades. They could, uh, they could covertly sponsor regime change. You know, they were a very sophisticated, uh, deep organization that uh, uh, due to tax breaks, could, o- could operate pretty freely and without royal oversight in most realms across Europe. Cut forward to 1291, the end of the 13th century, the Crusader states, the Western Christian states in the Holy Land, are lost. A, a Muslim army led by and known as the Mamluks wipes them out. Templars are the last line of defense. Literally, they evacuate the city of Acre on the coast in a scene reminiscent of a sort of medieval fall of Saigon. Following that, 
the Templars start to receive quite a lot of criticism because the Crusader states aren't won back, but yet they still have their enormous wealth base back in Europe. Mm -hmm. People are starting to talk about the Templars being reformed. People are starting to talk about the Templars being merged with the Hospitallers or the Teutonic Knights, which are other military orders similar to them. In the early 1300s, this comes to a head when they're attacked by the King of France, Philip IV. Philip IV is in in great need of money uh, to fund his own private sort of quote-unquote national wars against the kingdoms of Spain, England, and the county of Flanders. He's tried, to ta- he's tried taxing the church. That hasn't worked. He's, it's led him into deep conflict, a bitter conflict with the church, uh, with the Pope. He's tried uh, effectively robbing all the Jews in France. There are 100,000 Jews whom he expels from France, uh, takes all their money. It doesn't help him. It doesn't, it's not enough. So in 1307, he takes aim at the Templars, seeing that they're weak and at a moment of criticism, he comes up with a list of almost wholly fictitious, concocted, bogus crimes which the Templars are supposed to have committed, uh, breaking their vows of chastity and sleeping with one another, um, spitting on the cross, denying Christ, um, all sorts of grotesque, worshipping false idols, all sorts of grotesque uh, offences which are designed to appall and, um, and shock people in the Middle Ages. And it works. The Templars are all arrested one morning, in France, Friday the 13th of October, 1307. They're put in prison. Many of them are tortured, and they're forced to admit these crimes. The news of their, their misdeeds, quote-unquote news, is then widely broadcast, so that, I mean, it is medieval fake news. Mm-hmm. You have this sense that either they must be guilty or that these charges, even if they sound blown up, must be in some way true, or that it doesn't really matter what's true and what's not true. People just don't want to hear about it anymore. Yeah. That's, that's the situation the Templars find themselves in 1307. And after five years of this, in which the investigation spread, thanks to complicity of the Pope, to every other realm across the Mediterranean in which they're present, the Templars are finally held to be completely... Um, uh, d- disreputable and defunct as an organization, and they're wound up and their property is taken from them. Wow, that is fascinating. So all these, these it's interesting that you have all these myths coming back, and that puts them in this terrible spot to where their organization is completely taken down after hundreds of years of prominence. Uh, I'm interested in the research of this book, you know, starting with those myths and immediately after their, their takeover. Uh, what are some of the other big myths that you found about the Templars? Because a lot of those have kind of existed into the, the, wor- the world hundreds of years after. Well, I suppose the big myth of the Templars, which has been played upon endlessly by uh, movie makers and, and novelists, and with, you know, with good reason, because it's extremely entertaining, is the idea that the Templars had, quote-unquote, the Holy Grail, whatever that could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we most commonly think of the Holy Grail as a cup, as perhaps the, the medieval mythology said it was a cup that uh, had Christ had used to serve the disciples at the Last Supper that was subsequently used by Joseph of Arimathea to collect Christ's blood when he was on the cross and so on. In fact, you know, when I came to this book, I thought, oh, well, this, this must all just be kind of 20th century romanticizing and myth-making. But then you start to look into it, and actually it has much deeper roots. And the mythology of the Templars connects directly with the history. It's not something that's been imposed upon it um, from centuries distant. Even in 1200, the start of the 13th century, when the Templars were in some ways at their peak, the, they were being inserted into the King Arthur stories, which were like the sort of Indiana Jones movies or the James Bond movies of their day. And they were being inserted into those stories as the guardians of something called the Grail. 
the whole thing was an extended metaphor for the loss of Jerusalem, which had occurred to the Muslim Sultan Saladin, mm-hmm. and the need for uh, a reformed and uh, godly knighthood to go and win it back. But it was there nonetheless. And so this, this great myth the Templars as, as guardians of the Holy Grail isn't something we've invented in modern times to romanticize them. It was something people were entertaining themselves with right back in the Middle Ages. Well, that's fascinating. Um, are there any modern-day groups or societies that you think would rival the Templars in you know, size or influence today? Well, I think you know, there are these incredible resonances when we talk about the story. You know, I, I talk about the Templars as, elite military, uh, or, as an elite military organization, you know, and, and I think it's not a stretch to see them alongside the, the Navy SEALs or Delta Force, or the SAS, the French Foreign Legion, Mossad, you know, any of those organizations, really, this, the, these are their, the Templars are their forebears. I think in terms of their financial services, you could certainly look at, I mean, the, the global reach of a Google or a Facebook or uh, an Apple or an Amazon today, uh, the logistical ability to move goods and people and money around the world, the financial acumen, which is worthy of, a, say, a J.P. Morgan or a Deloitte today, all of these, the Templars are their forebears. I mean, so, and I, I, I know it sometimes sounds, sounds kind of crass to make those comparisons across the ages, but I really do think within this world that I've described, uh, these are the direct comparators for us today. No, I, I can see that. Well, well, Dan, I know our time is short, but I want to ask you one more question. Uh, what are you reading right now, and what's next on your plate? You know what? I have, whenever I finish a book, I try and uh, and like decompress my mind. So I'm reading a lot of uh, detective fiction and old westerns. And actually, the last book I read is Elmore Leonard, Valdez is Coming, oh. uh, which is just the most fantastic. You go back to some of the stuff Leonard was writing. I, I mean, I love those stories. Anyway, it's, it's a great palette change for me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> In terms of my next book, uh, my next big medieval book is going to be a full history of the Crusades um, oh. through the eyes of the people who, who went on them, and I'm pretty excited about it. That, that is quite an ordeal. Uh, I cannot imagine writing that, just the, the sheer amount of history there. So good luck with that. Thank you very much, David. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. That was historian and best-selling author Dan Jones speaking about his latest book, The Templars, which we're reading here at the station right now. And before that was Johnny Bernhard speaking about her latest novel, How We Came to Be. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. This program, as well as all of WRBH's other interview programs, can be found on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash wrbhreadingradio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.